This is episode 30. Have I run this thing to ground yet? It becomes clearer to me as I go on with the podcast that the efficiency of producing novel ideas and knowledge is probably tapering off. There's a lot to learn and talk about, sure, but it may soon be time to transition, if possible, to a conversational format. There's a way in which the combination of minds produces in the interaction more than just the sum of the parts. The individual across from me will have a unique background and area of interest. They will have different strengths and different weaknesses in comparison to me, hopefully more strengths than me and fewer weaknesses. In these days of quarantine, the possibility of getting into the same room with another person, in the manner of Joe Rogan, is limited. My capacity to reach the people I most want to talk to is pretty limited, too. In the short term, at least, I will continue as I have been, reading and learning and thinking on my own and sharing my thoughts with you. And meanwhile, I have a day job in science. I appreciate you coming along with me as I produce and present these audio essays, and I further appreciate anything that you can do to help me expand my audience and reach deeper into the field of experts. At bottom, the thing that I really want to explain is phenomenal consciousness, the existence of subjective experience in an objective world. From time to time and within certain theoretical models, we hear talk of something called access consciousness. In the second episode, I laid out the essential characteristics of consciousness as we know from the human experience. I said that human consciousness is a unified composition of contents, that the contents are specific and meaningful, and they exist from a point of view. I said that human consciousness is continuous in time and that it is limited and coherent. To what extent are these characteristics central to the phenomenon of consciousness? Might aspects of these characteristics be features of the human? Take the observation of continuity in time, for example. Consciousness seems to flow forward in an ever-present present. What if a brain were constructed or evolved which failed to exhibit the feature of continuity? Could it still be conscious? The problem that Ned Block and others raise with regard to conscious access might have something to do with human cognitive capacities that make it unclear what consciousness ultimately is. In a paper called Two Neural Correlates of Consciousness, Ned Block writes, quote, I have previously proposed a conceptual distinction between phenomenal consciousness and access consciousness. Phenomenally conscious content is what differs between experiences, as of red and green, whereas access conscious content is content information about which is broadcast in the global workspace. Some have accepted the distinction but held that phenomenal consciousness and access consciousness coincide in the real world. Others have accepted something in the vicinity of the conceptual distinction, but argued that only access consciousness can be studied experimentally. Others have denied the conceptual distinction itself." Unquote. The question here is whether there can be a real-world distinction between the two descriptions of consciousness proposed by Ned Block. Are phenomenal consciousness and access consciousness two separate things? And if they are, what is the relationship between them? Phenomenal consciousness is experience itself the what it is like that we often discuss when we are talking about consciousness. Access consciousness would seem on its face to be a subset of phenomenal consciousness, that subset which can be reported. Most of the time I think we presuppose that these views of consciousness are the same thing. If you are seated in front of a computer monitor and shown an image, you will both experience the image, say a blue circle, and be able to report what you are seeing, a blue circle. 
but typically the task presented to you in the laboratory is more complex than this. In a previous episode, I described an experiment to you that might shed some light on the apparent distinction between phenomenal consciousness and access consciousness. A classic experiment was carried out by George Sperling in 1960. When six visible letters were flashed briefly for subjects to report their identity and location, the average recall was less than five correct. Sperling extended how long the letters were shown by another half second and there was still no improvement. In the quest for consciousness, Koch writes, quote, To get at this discrepancy, Sperling switched to displays consisting of three rows of four letters and ingeniously combined this with a high, a medium, or a low-pitched tone after the image disappeared. The sound indicated whether the upper, middle, or lower line had to be read out. Now, subjects reported three of the four characters in the indicated row. Because they could not foretell which, role, which row they were supposed to report, subjects had to store an average of three times three letters, more than the 4.3 letters of the original design. Sperling also varied the time between the offset of the display and the cue. If the tone was delayed by one second, performance fell to the level observed in the non-cued design. The experiment suggested that letters are read off from a high-capacity high capacity, rapidly decaying visual form of storage called iconic memory." Unquote. In this experiment, you, the subject, see an array of letters, three rows of four letters for a total of 12, flashed briefly. If you were asked to give a general report of what you experienced, you might say you saw an array of letters which included an L, a J, a B, and a bunch of others. In this sense, your phenomenal consciousness and your access consciousness are in basic agreement. Suppose the researcher told you before flashing the image on the screen that you were about to see an array of letters. Shortly afterward, I'll snap my fingers, at which point you will report as many letters as you can recall. In accordance with Sperling's original study, you will report about four letters to the researcher when he snaps his fingers. This result is not particularly instructive to us on the difference between phenomenal consciousness and access consciousness, except in one crucial way. You feel as though you really saw all 12 letters, each having a real letter identity. It's just that now you can only remember about four of them. The more interesting experiment in which a cue occurs just after the image disappears to let you know whether to recall the top, middle, or bottom row. In this case, you report about three out of the four in each trial, regardless of whether the post-stimulus cue is for the top, middle, or bottom row. This implies that about nine letters are available for you to report, not just four. At the end of such a trial, though, having reported three letters out of the four, you could not be asked to report on a different row and expected to answer with accuracy. By now, you have forgotten what you once, a few seconds ago, could have reported. But it seems clear to me, at least in light of this example, that the distinction has to do with working or iconic memory, not a second type of consciousness. Is this observation in favor of Ned Block or against him? Global workspace theorists would have it that the remembered and reportable letters in the trial are those that are broadcast to the global workspace. They are accessible for report, but they are not the only letters that were seen. So that which was experienced, the phenomenal, differs from that which can now be reported, the accessible. By this analysis, phenomenal consciousness contains much more content than anyone will be able to report. Once a selection has been made for what to hold in iconic or working memory, the trace of all other phenomenal contents has been lost. Access consciousness, therefore, contains a subset of phenomenal consciousness. Ned Block writes, quote, 
we can distinguish between phenomenal contents of experience and access conscious contents, contents information about which is made available to the brain's consumer systems, systems of memory, perceptual categorization, reasoning, planning, evaluation of alternatives, decision-making, voluntary direction of attention, and more generally, rational control of action. Wide availability motivates the idea that there is a global workspace and that information concerning conscious representations is broadcast in this global workspace. The neural basis of information being sent to this global workspace can be called the access NCC. Rees et al. note that in studies of the neural correlates of bistable perception, in which there are spontaneous fluctuations in conscious contents, reports of conscious contents correlate with activation in frontal and parietal areas. Dehane and Shangu suggest that a significant piece of the neural machinery of what they call access to consciousness, roughly equivalent to my access consciousness, is to be found in workspace neurons, which have long-range excitatory axons that allow, for example, visual areas in the back of the brain to communicate with frontal and parietal areas. Thus, it is a good guess that the visual access NCC the neural basis of access is activation of these frontal and parietal areas by occipital and inferior temporal areas. As Dehane and his colleagues have emphasized, there is a winner-take-all competition among representations to be broadcast in the global workspace. This point is crucial to the nature of the access NCC and the difference between it and the phenomenal NCC." Unquote. Lionel Nakash has argued that access consciousness can account for phenomenal consciousness. This would suggest to me that phenomenal consciousness is reducible to access consciousness. This is, in a sense, the flip side of Ned Block's position, as I read it. Nakash writes, quote, The core definition of phenomenal consciousness postulates the existence of unreported conscious experiences. As proposed by Block in his seminal 1995 article, Phenomenal Consciousness is Experience, the phenomenally conscious aspect of a state is what it is like to be in that state. The mark of access consciousness, by contrast, is availability for use in reasoning and rationally guiding speech and action. Later in the same article, Bloch confirmed his view that access consciousness is required for reasoning, reporting, and enabling rational control of action. Our rich, subjective, phenomenal experience would not have to be restricted to the very limited set of representations that we are accessing and that we self-report. This proposal fits very nicely with the immediate intuition most of us share about conscious experience. We do experience much more than we are actually able to report to ourselves or to others. However, once we go beyond this immediate intuitive agreement, we may wonder, how do I know I experience something? The response to this question is so univocal that I will cite Bloch's own answer. When one has a phenomenally conscious experience, one is in some way aware of having it. In other words, we know we are phenomenally conscious because we access this experience and self-report it. The transitive action of being aware of something clearly defines phenomenal consciousness as a form of access to this something. Otherwise, we would not have any subjective ground, valid or not, to posit the existence of phenomenal consciousness. Consequently, phenomenal consciousness appears necessarily as a type of self-report and seems therefore included within the realm of access consciousness. Note that this remark also unifies within access consciousness both the functions of consciousness, executive control, machinery of self-report, 
and the subjective experience of consciousness. It is noteworthy that within this framework, two apparently very distinct reports in terms of content, such as ICX, typical access consciousness report, and IC much more than X, typical phenomenal consciousness report, do belong to the same class of explicit meta-reports. Both are explicit self-reports of the current subjective experience. Phenomenal conscious contents can be accounted for as typical access consciousness mental contents, unquote. I can see the beauty of Nakash's argument here. The idea of self-report here, though, is like a recursive present awareness. We are aware that we are aware, and this is a part of the ongoing phenomenon. But experimental research is generally concerned with what we are aware of having been aware of. Let's return to the experiment with the three rows of four letters. After the array was flashed, you were asked to give a general report of what you experienced, and you said that you saw an array of letters which included an L, a J, and a B, and a bunch of others. That means that at the time of reporting, you remember seeing more letters than you can subsequently report. How do you know that? Because you were conscious of it, or because you are now conscious of it. You can only know what you are conscious of right now. You can't tell me what you were conscious of then, but only what you are now remembering having been conscious of then. Thus, access consciousness all the way down. This actually accords better with global workspace theory because according to that framework, if it isn't broadcast to the global workspace, then it isn't conscious. Global neuronal workspace is described by Stanislas Dehaene in his book, Consciousness in the Brain. Dehaene writes, quote, Global neuronal workspace theory proposes that what we experience as consciousness is the global sharing of information. The brain contains dozens of local processors, each specialized for one type of operation. A specific communication system, the global workspace, allows them to flexibly share information. At any given moment, the workspace selects a subset of processors, establishes a coherent representation of the information they encode, holds it in mind for an arbitrary duration, and disseminates it back to virtually any of the other processors. Whenever a piece of information accesses the workspace, it becomes conscious." Unquote. That description implies that there is only access consciousness. Phenomenal consciousness is what it is like to have access consciousness. That's the whole of it. I am not a global workspace theorist, and I think that the idea of a global workspace is, at best, a metaphor for what is really going on. As you know, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, I advocate on behalf of a theoretical framework called the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, TICL. According to the TICL, the conscious mind is an emergent property of a very large system of integrated neuronal elements. The integration, if it were measurable, of every one of the elements with each of the others is some non-zero level. That is, each element has causal power over each of the others and over itself across some time window. Most neurons in the brain and spinal cord are not part of this integrated system. Evidence shows that our system lies within the thalamocortex. The contents of consciousness are emergent from the functioning of subsystems of neuronal elements that exist within the system. By definition, a subsystem is a set of neuronal elements over which the degree of temporally integrated causality is higher than that of the system as a whole. From the point of view of the system, these subsystems provide meaningful contents. The system experiences its subsystems. According to this view, Phenomenal consciousness is composed of the whole set of presently existing subsystems, 
as experienced by the system. What it is like to be that system depends upon the dynamics of the current subsystems. Working memory maintains selected subsystemic activities beyond the stimuli which brought them about. Most subsystems will collapse just about as soon as the stimulus that was entering the system through their elements is removed. In the experiment I described, you are asked to report on a particular row of letters. There are three rows of letters flashed, and now you know to report, say, the top row. You give about three of the four letters. This tells me that there is a momentary buffer of memory process that enables the recovery of a few perceptual items that have already disappeared. This is a cognitive capability, not a description of consciousness per se. If we had evolved to manage a larger working memory capacity, perhaps we, we, we could recall all 12 letters perfectly. Suppose we found an individual who can consistently do just that. Which is the more parsimonious explanation? A greater degree of consciousness or a higher working memory capacity? I would suggest that of recent perceptual events, the selection to report some comes at the expense of the others. The problem with access consciousness is that it is me measured as memory now for a previous event. Researchers in such paradigms of investigation will forever be chasing what is already gone. They are then left to infer what may have been there in the first place. Bloch seems to infer, and I agree with him completely, that there was more there in the first place than what survives into the present. Maybe we can access anything in phenomenal consciousness, but not everything, if you see what I mean. This is either a feature or a bug of human cognition, and if we are to side with natural selection, we might be apt to lean in favor of this limitation as a feature, assuming that some disadvantageous trade-off would have had to be made in the evolution of our species in order to attain a broader range of access. Nakash is right, in my opinion, about a kind of self-report that provides access to the present, in the present, to what is being experienced in the present. He concludes that everything is access consciousness. I conclude that in the present, access and phenomenal consciousness are identical. In the next moment, I only have some of the previous content available to report, so retroactively I have limited access. The distinction is real for the purpose of experimentation, as long as the experiment relies upon an account of past consciousness in the present. If a tree falls in the woods and there is no one around to hear it, has it made a sound? If you are aware of all four letters in the row, and now you can only report three of them, does that mean that you were not conscious of the four in the first place? I don't think it does. Cue any position in the twelve letters, and ask the subject to name the letter that had just been in that position. I hypothesize that your subject will be able to do that with ease. Thus, in the moment of your asking, all twelve were part of phenomenal consciousness, but now that a selection has been made, the others are no longer there. Witness testimony is notoriously unreliable. What did the suspect look like? How tall was he? What color was his shirt, his shoes? Is the man you saw commit the crime sitting in the courtroom today? The failure of accurate testimony from well-meaning witnesses is an indication of the weakness of memory, not the richness of consciousness. Ask the witness the same questions while she is right now watching the crime scene unfold before her, and I am confident that she will give you an accurate account. Maybe we are lousy at reporting our conscious experiences to others, yet phenomenal consciousness is marvelously rich as it unfolds in the subjective present. We may select and hold on to a few fragments of that richness, but the rest, alas, has drifted away forever.